Seasons greetings, one and all. While there are a thousand lists for the best Christmas films, whose first place is reserved inarguably for It's a Wonderful Life, and the best Christmas songs. Nat King Cole's The Christmas Song. One could almost smell the intoxicating fragrance of the warm chestnuts roasting on an open fire. You'll hardly ever encounter a list of the best Christmas poems. In my opinion, that's simply inexcusable, being that this is, among all the seasons, the most poetic, musical, and divine. Far and away, this, the latter half of December, across whose waning, sunless, cold days eager Advent stretches her impatient limbs, is the most special time of the year. It's the time of year during which all the combined forces of sublimity, mystery, joy, awe, and art, charity, eloquence, brotherhood, innocence, and peace, grandeur, devotion, inspiration, and strength come together at long last to mingle with unexampled and uninterrupted beauty. And so, without further ado, I give you the five greatest Christmas poems with which to receive the splendor of this truly divine and joyous holiday season. We begin, unexpectedly, with a pagan prelude to our list. Born in the year 70 BC, Virgil died almost two decades prior to Jesus' birth. As a matter of history, then, he was most certainly not an anointed follower of the Nazarene Jew, the curious child to whom the Immaculate Maiden gave birth. But he did write a glorious poem by which the great Messiah's arrival was, shall we say, prophesied. His fourth eclogue, onto which so many of his learned Christian admirers, from Augustine to Dante to Milton, have excitedly leapt, reads very much like a prediction of the birth of Christ. The stodgy old classicist, of course, is never far away, and is ever ready to check our enthusiasm with his reminder that the subject of this eclogue, or from the Greek meaning selection, is not Jesus, but the unborn child of Mark, Antony, and Octavia, sister of Augustus. Virgil was hopeful that the fruit of this union, a union to which, despite Octavia's incontestable beauty, feminine charm, and political clout, Antony only grudgingly consented, would heal the wounds of a century of Rome's domestic strife. Sadly, it did not. To the great disappointment of all, the child was born a girl, and, to the surprise of none, Antony was incapable of cooling his passion for Cleopatra, the Egyptian queen of whom he was so fatally enamored. 
still, I think the fourth eclogue is a lovely addition to the season, and ought to be included in the Yuletide canon. Some lines as follows. Ours is the crowning era foretold in prophecy, born of time. A great new cycle of centuries begins. Justice returns to earth. The golden age returns, and its firstborn comes down from heaven above. Look kindly, chaste Lucina, upon this infant's birth. For with him shall hearts of iron cease, and hearts of gold inherit the whole earth. Come soon, dear child of the gods, Jupiter's great viceroy. Come soon, the time is near, to begin your life illustrious. Look how the round and ponderous globe bows to salute you. The lands, the stretching leagues of sea, the unplumbed sky. Fantastic. Prophetic, sublime. Those describe the words of Virgil. We now turn to the first truly Christian poet on our list, the estimable, unparalleled, and at times irascible John Milton. To Milton, among all poets, there simply is no equal. While I'm not alone in this opinion, I think I'm most fervid and emphatic in its expression and defense. The blind bard is responsible for the greatest poetic masterpiece, not only in his, but perhaps in any language. His twelve-book magnum opus, Paradise Lost. Eyeless in London, impecunious and ailing, Milton dictated this 10,000-line epic poem, written in blank verse iambic pentameter, to his three daughters. These three patient girls, unpaid amanuenses one and all, sat at the foot of their tempestuous father, their tyrannical master, as he showered them with the genius of his inspired brain. They received for their efforts little in the way of paternal affection and love, but their role in bringing to life their father's genius was no small feat. It's not the type of thing we overlook, and these three poor ladies, these three poetesses by proxy, don't go unacknowledged, at least not by me. It was with Paradise Lost that Milton, for all intents and purposes, ended his literary career. Paradise regained, and Samson Agonistes followed the epic work, but they were, in comparison, mere pot-boilers, urbane trivialities to which Milton's brilliance seemed as though coerced to condescend. Though, had they flowed from the pen of any other lesser writer, they would have ranked as both his crowning achievement and everlasting glory— he began it, though, at the age of twenty-one, with his famed On the Morning of Christ's Nativity, a work from which many subsequent 
pious English writers drew untold amounts of inspiration. It begins thus. This is the month, and this the happy morn, wherein the Son of Heaven's eternal King, of wedded maiden, virgin mother born, our great redemption from above did bring. For so the holy sages once did sing, that he our deadly forfeit should release, and with his father work us a perpetual peace. Here we have a wondrous description of Mary as wedded maid and virgin mother, and the reminder that her child, awarded to us by heaven's eternal king, would ensure our redemption. Milton continues, That glorious form, that light unsufferable, and that far beaming blaze of majesty, wherewith he wont at heaven's high council table to sit the midst of triennial unity. He laid aside, and here with us to be, forsook the courts of everlasting day, and chose with us a darksome house of mortal clay. Again, the image of God's condescension, from the bliss of Empyrean to the squalor and imperfection of clay. He continues, Say, heavenly muse, shall not thy sacred vein afford a present to the infant God? Hast thou no verse, no hymn, or solemn strain to welcome him to this his new abode? Now, while the heaven by the sun's team untrod hath took no print of the approaching light, and all the spangled host keep watch in squadrons bright. Milton's set to change this. He will produce the verse, the hymn, the solemn strain by which, entering his new earthly abode, the infant God is now to be welcomed. Milton goes on, See how from far upon the eastern road the star-led wizards haste with odors sweet. O run, prevent them with thy humble ode, and lay it lowly at his blessed feet. Have thou the honor first thy lord to greet, and join thy voice unto the angel choir, from out his secret altar touched with hallowed fire. A reference here to the Magi, the star-led wizards in whose aromatic baggage the likes of myrrh and frankincense were carefully stowed away. Milton goes on, It was the winter wild, while the heaven-born child, all meanly wrapped in the rude manger, lies. Nature in awe of him had doffed her gaudy trim, with her great master so to sympathize. It was no season then for her to wanton with the sun, her lusty paramour. The stars with deep amaze stand fixed in steadfast gaze, bending one way their precious influence, and will not take their flight for all the morning light, or Lucifer that often warned them thence, but in their glimmering orbs did glow, until their lord himself bespake and bid them go. And now a reference to Virgil's fourth eclogue, 
For if such holy song enwrap our fancy long, time will run back and fetch the age of gold, Virgil's reference, and speckled vanity will sicken soon and die, and leprous sin will melt from earthly mold, and hell itself will pass away, and leave her dolorous mansions to the peering day. And finally, the grand conclusion to this infant scene. But see, the virgin blessed hath laid her babe to rest. Time is our tedious song should here have ending. Heaven's youngest team star hath fixed her polished car, her sleeping lord with handmaid lamp attending, and all about the courtly stable bright harnessed angels sit in order serviceable. The majesty of this poem can't be overstated. I read to you just a few excerpts. I urge you, in good time, please read the rest. We now turn, if only briefly, to Alfred Tennyson, the baronial bard and poet laureate of England. He penned his plaintive in memoriam for his deceased friend, Arthur Hallam. Hallam, with whom the fiercely private and introspective Tennyson forged a strong relationship while at Cambridge University, died of a cerebral hemorrhage while traveling in Europe. Tennyson, upon hearing the news, was distraught. The great wave of sadness by which the young poet was overcome drove him to write his poem In Memoriam, in which he makes a hopeful Christmas reference. Ring out false pride in place and blood, the civic slander and the spite. Ring in the love of truth and right. Ring in the common love of good. Ring out old shapes of foul disease. Ring out the narrowing lust of gold. Ring out the thousand wars of old. Ring in the thousand years of peace. Ring in the valiant man and free. The larger heart, the kindlier hand, ring out the darkness of the land, ring in the Christ that is to be. These are just three of the stanzas to this poem. We next turn to T.S. Eliot, the great Missouri-born poet to whom England much more than America has a national claim. On this side of the Atlantic, he lived a full quarter century, the first 25 years of his life. On that side, a half, dying in London at the ripe old age of 76. He consummated his preference for British manners and ways by converting to Anglicanism, the official state religion of the crown. His poetry reflected the complexity of his changing belief. He felt himself mentally to be Catholic, ancestrally to be Calvinistic, and temperamentally as puritanical as our melancholic Milton. Out of that swirling whirlpool of theology and personality, he produced his Journey of the Magi, from which I now quote, 
A cold coming we had of it. Just the worst time of the year for a journey. And such a long journey. The ways deep and the weather sharp. It was the very dead of winter. And the camels galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces, and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women, and the night fires going out, and the lack of shelters, and the cities hostile and the towns unfriendly, and the villages dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, with the voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all folly. Then, at dawn, we came down to a temperate valley, wet, below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a watermill beating the darkness and three trees on the low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door dicing for pieces of silver and feet kicking the empty wineskins. But there was no information, and so we continued, and arriving at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place. It was, you might say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember. And I would do it again, but set down, this, set down, this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly we had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. Jesus, you'll note, goes completely unnamed in this fascinating work. No reference is made to the godly infant, the magi, not the child toward whom their deployment has compelled them, are the main subjects of this poem. What an interesting change of perspective. Contrary to the account given to us by the Gospels and repeated by Milton, the Magi are unbidden by a great star bathing the dusky vault in light, by a dazzling orb guiding their way, by a celestial sign by which, as the story traditionally goes, they are said to have been beckoned. They're merely enduring this long and, frankly, inauspicious journey as if they were some underpaid chargé de fer on an unenviable foreign assignment. 
They're more like jet-lagged diplomatic officials than honored witnesses to the birth of Christ. And the best they can say of Bethlehem's historic birth, it was satisfactory, nothing more. And they understood it to be a birth, but was there not an ineffable sense of more abundity about it? With this birth they sensed their own death. Perhaps they anticipated the necessary, imminent death of this newborn child. Perhaps the death of their pagan Eastern creed. We next turn to Thomas Hardy, the renowned English novelist and poet of the Victorian age. Uncelebrated, if not reviled in his own day, Hardy produced such famous works as Jude the Obscure, Far from the Maddening Crowd, and Tess of the D'Uberville, to which, deservedly, posterity has offered a much warmer, friendlier reception. As it happens, the realism of his themes and the candor of his diction were thought too provocative for puritanical tastes. Later in life, burdened by the disappointment of his novel's failures, Hardy focused on poetry. His commitment to the more mainstream varieties of Christianity was tenuous at best. He wasn't at all immune to the encroachments of deism, spinozism, and even agnosticism, to which his curious and welcoming spirit wouldn't dare bar its doors. Yet still, despite the gathering of these unorthodox opinions at his gates, Hardy wrote a beautiful poem about Christmas Eve. He says, Christmas Eve and twelve of the clock. Now they are all on their knees, an elder said as we sat in a flock by the embers in hearthside ease. We pictured the meek, mild creatures where they dwelt in their strawy pen, nor did it occur to one of us there to doubt they were kneeling then. So fair a fancy few would weave in these years, yet I feel, if someone said on Christmas Eve, come, see the oxen kneel, in the lonely Barton by yonder coombe, our childhood used to know. I should go with him in the gloom, hoping it might be so. Its brevity only adds to and enhances its beauty. The spirit of Christmas in this scene suffuses all. We once felt this way when we were young, when we were children, when we were filled with the spirit of hope. And there you have it, the five poems you must read and enjoy this Christmas season. I hope I gave you a good introduction to these fabulous works, out of which I think you'll derive much joy and pleasure. Thank you, 
and have the happiest of holidays.